yeah great um thank you so much everyone uh for coming to this edition of the uh sport and leisure history seminar um which is brought to you um by the british society of sports history in conjunction with the institute of historical research in london i'm raf nicholson um and i'm going to be chairing this evening's paper we go along as we go along, feel free to um, type your questions into the chat if you would like, um, or you can hold them back until the end of the paper um, and then you can raise your hand virtually um, and we'll come to you on Zoom. Um, until that point, if you could stay on mute, that would be really useful just so that we don't have any accidental interruptions. So with the housekeeping out of the way, I'm delighted that this evening our speaker is Professor Matt Taylor um, from the International Centre for Sport History and Culture at the Montford University. Matt is a, a social historian uh, with wide expertise um, in the history of sport and recreation. Um, he's most recently the author of the excellent Sport and the Home Front, Wartime Britain at Play, um, he's previously published widely on the history of football um, and how he's now working on um, the history of uh, boxing in Britain. Um, and that's the research that he's going to be presenting to us this evening. Um, I first heard um, a version of this paper um, at the British Society of Sports History Conference um, a few months ago in Manchester. Um, and it was fascinating. Um, so I'm delighted that um, Matt's joining us to present a, a slightly fuller version of that research this evening um, in a paper entitled Barbara, Barbara Buttrick and the History of Women's Boxing in Britain. Um, so I'll hand over to you, Matt, if you just want to um, share your slides with us. There we go. Can you see those okay? Thanks very much, Raf. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much. Thanks, Raf um, and Jeff and, and Amanda for the for the invitation to speak. Um, uh, in a, a kind of, in a way, a bit of research. I mean, in, in a sense, I think you're right, Raf. Um, I've kind of dabbled in the history of boxing at various periods. And um, this is kind of an area that I've just become interested in. Um, the first thing I should say before I start is that part of what I'm going to talk about, parts of it, I'll link to an article or that, that isn't published yet, but something that I've worked on with someone else. So it's really important to mention that with Neil Skinner, um, who is now at the University of Stirling. Um, so there are bits and pieces of this are kind of linked to a, to a, to an article that at some point we'll get, get together and... Um, Get published. That article is kind of more on the uh, on the Nicola Adams side of it. Kind of, kind of its interest is kind of focused on a number of the things I'm going to talk about today. So, um, on the eighth of August, 2012, Britain's Nicola Adams outpointed Mary Com of India to reach the final of the inaugural Olympic women's flyweight boxing competition. Before the fight, a small 82-year-old woman who'd flown in from Miami, was introduced to the crowd as a pioneer of women's boxing among modern pioneers. Her name was Barbara Buttrick. She was born in Cottingham near Hull. Um, a, slight, a slight difference in some of the sources on the dates, but I think either late 1921 or early, early 1930. Buttrick is certainly widely recognised as a key figure in what I'd call a kind of fragmentary history of women's boxing in Britain. 
Melissa Smith's 2014 um, uh, History of Women Fighters included a section on Buttrick, an excellent section, as does T.L. Jennings' History of Female Combat Sport and Vanessa Tallman's Study of Fairground Boxing, which is a great book if, if people haven't read it. Um, broader studies of the sport, academic studies particularly, seem to be less aware, though, of, of Buttrick's significance. Gerald Jem's Concise History of Boxing has a chapter on gender, but just has one very brief mention of Buttrick. Buttrick then took up the sport during the late 1940s. She faced disapproval and discrimination from the British boxing establishment. I'll say more about her kind of history, but just as a brief introduction, she moved to the United States in 1952, where she enjoyed greater opportunities and recognition. And in 1957, she became the first sanctioned women's boxing title holder. In retirement, Buttrick became a key figure in the foundation and development of the British, in, the, sorry, the Women's International Boxing Federation, the WIBF, which I'll mention in a little bit in, this, in, the, in the talk. And really, she was a key figure in the broader progress of women's professional boxing from the 1990s onwards. Now, it's common for historians to look on the lives and stories of female athletes as neglected or hidden histories. And there's certainly a sense in which the same could be said of Barbara Buttrick. However, my concern here is not so much just to reveal this marginalised history as to examine some aspects of how it has been remembered and forgotten. So that's what I want to focus on. And um, so in what follows, I'm kind of focusing on three main phases um, in, the, in the story, I suppose, of, 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 of this process. First, I'm going to look at the archiving of Buttrick's career from the late 1940s, really, up to the 1990s. Second, I'm going to look at how the Buttrick story was kind of interwoven into the narrative of women's boxing at the 2012 Olympics. And then I'm going to look, finally, at the portrayal of Buttrick in Amanda Whittington's 2017 play, Mighty Atoms. But in between that, I've got what I've called, called interludes, Kind of two interludes where really I kind of want to connect Barbara Buttrick both backwards to the past, to earlier women's boxes, and slightly forwards to a kind of period where it seems in a lot in a lot of references from the 60s to the 90s that she seems to have been forgotten. So in a sense, I'm I'm kind of trying trying to uh, place Barbara Buttrick at the centre of this story, this bigger story about um, women's boxing in Britain, certainly from the you know, the late 19th century and um, uh, up until, I suppose, the present day to a degree. I'm going to start, if this works, by just, people don't know, just showing you um, uh, Barbara Buttrick. And this is from a, a Pathé News, a brief Pathé News clip. You can get it on YouTube. This one's from YouTube. Um, uh, uh, where yeah, it's, it's very self-explanatory and it's very short. So hopefully it'll work. There's no sound right now, but it should come in.
I think all this talk about girls not boxing is old-fashioned. Girls aren't the delicate flowers they used to be. Anyhow, my boyfriend doesn't mind, so I should... Okay, she says that, that sorry about that bit at the end, she says, my, anyway, my boyfriend doesn't mind, so why should, why should, why should you, why should I, so... Um, I've got to move on to the next slide. Sorry. There we go. So I, I'm not going to I'm not going to kind of deconstruct that or anything like that. We can kind of talk about it if you want to later. But but I just wanted to kind of show you, Barbara, kind of at the time when she was becoming reasonably well known. And I kind of well, I want to start really by giving you a kind of brief outline of of of, of her boxing career and saying a little bit about that, in which we're then going to kind of discuss how. The um, I suppose the narrative of her career was developed. Um, so Barbara apparently decided, and I'll come back to this story later, to take up boxing, having inadvertently come across a story about another boxer, a pre-1914 boxer called Polly Burns, although um, her original name was was Polly Fairclough. Uh, and she she came across that that um, um, uh story in a newspaper that she'd been given by a mother to clean her football boots. Uh, Buttrick's career after that has generally been presented as a series of battles against discrimination and disapproval from, from kind of officialdom, both political and boxing. And I've given you, given you here a kind of very brief kind of indication of some of the key moments in her, in her boxing career. But I want to focus on two key incidents that particularly emphasise the first one was February 1949, um, when uh, she had a scheduled appearance. She was meant to have an exhibition bout with London male middleweight boxer Bert Saunders at the Kilburn Empire. Um, this got a fair amount of publicity. Um, she was criticised, amongst others, by the Variety Artists Federation, the VAF which claimed the display would be, quote, degrading to the best interests of society, public entertainment, the boxing profession and womanhood. Now, the VAF urged its members to boycott the show, although in um, the, the theatre's owner, Nat Tennant, kind of, kind of um, shot back by claiming that the Federation really needed to clear up its own stable because it allowed its members to engage in striptease and nude posing acts. And they said, well, you know, that this is certainly nowhere near as bad as that. Um, the British Boxing Board of Control, who will also kind of feature in the story, um, also stated its disapproval. And when the London County Council threatened to remove the promoter's entertainment licence, the bank was cancelled. Although Buttrick did still perform on her own, and there's a kind of indication of that um, from, the, from, from the middle um, image, in a display of shadow boxing and punch ball work. And she was kind of advertised there as the, as the girl boxer who was banned by the Variety Artists Federation. Just over a year later, in July 1950, Buttrick was scheduled to fight German-born Yorkshire resident Elsa Hoffman in Dewsbury. Now, once again, the fight, which was billed as, as one of Buttrick's kind of first um, significant professional encounters, although she had boxed a lot in the, uh, uh, in, in the booths, um, didn't take place. But this time, because her opponent failed to turn up, there were criticisms again from, from you know, lots of, lots of areas of society. The mayor of Dewsbury considered the fight, to, the fight to be deplorable and likely to lower, quote, the moral tone of the town. The local police warned the promoter that basically public opinion was against the fight. Um, 
so you know you shouldn't put it on none of that actually stopped the fight on the or could stop the fight on, the, on this occasion the, the it was the fact that the fighter didn't turn up and and the promoter became convinced that perhaps there was opinion against it but it could have taken place because it was in the unlicensed world of the fair showground and boxing booth so the british boxing board of control wasn't involved uh, in any opinion on, the, on this occasion and this of course was a common training ground for male fighters but it was also a site that placed Buttrick's endeavours kind of beyond the public gaze. And, you know, a lot of women's box, boxing kind of um, took place in these, these um, sites which were beyond, beyond the public gaze. So Barbara fought most of her bouts when she was in, in, in Britain in, in travelling boxing booths, particularly in the West Country in Yorkshire. She travelled in France for, for a number of months. In 1952, she travelled with her trainer and, and later husband, Len Smith, to the United States, as I, said, as I mentioned before. She continued to compete in touring exhibitions and kind of linked to kind of the American carnival scene. Um, but by the mid-1950s, she was fighting competitively. And in 1957, she fought against Phyllis Kugler in a fully licensed bout in Antonio, Texas, for the Women's World Championship. Buttrick won. And so she claimed the first sanctioned women's boxing title. Now, at the tail end of her career, she moved to Miami and she trained in the same gym as Emil Griffith and Willie Pett and a young Cassius Clay. She retired from boxing in 1960, but she remained involved and remembered in the sport, particularly in the USA. And this is something which kind of isn't perhaps mentioned as much when you do hear about Buttrick. She became a licensed boxing manager in the 1980s. She was elected to the International Boxing and Wrestling Hall of Fame in 1990. She also became the first female president of the Veteran um, Boxers Association of Florida, which is a picture there on the left-hand side. And as I noted in my introduction, she became one of the key figures in, in really the development of organised women's boxing when, when she helped found the, the Women's International Boxing Federation in 1993. And then, you know, in more recent years, she's been kind of linked to various boxing halls, halls of fame and she's become significantly recognised. Now, much of what we know about Buttrick's boxing career comes from her own writing. There was never a published autobiography, but Buttrick seems to have carefully curated the biographical details which were presented to the public through newspaper articles, through boxing programmes, through information pamphlets and various things like this. The Barbara Buttrick collection, which is held at the National Fairground Archive in Sheffield and which a lot of my images for, the, for this talk have come from, contains a number of short and one or two longer biographical sketches which seem to have been penned at different times of her career. The actual authors aren't always clear, but the consistency of the accounts across the years seem to suggest, I think, that Buttrick herself was a key influence in shaping her own life story. And I don't think we should assume that that would always be the case, but in, in her case, I think it was. Um, for instance, a short account of her life in the booths that she wrote in a letter to the World's Fair magazine in 1954 is remarkably similar to the 13-page typescript in the archives dated October 1952, which outlined her biography up to that point. So key moments and turning points appear consistently in these accounts. So for instance, I've already mentioned Buttrick's inspiration to take up boxing through reading about Polly Burns by chance 
is a significant element of all contemporary versions of her career narrative. And that's proved, I think, equally important in subsequent histories when it's been used by, by historians in really helping to, to stitch together what might be considered otherwise disparate fragments in the wider history of women's boxing. You know, we've got examples at different points of time which don't seem to be connected, but examples like this kind of connect them together and, and, and help develop the narrative. Maria Tambuku has written about the memory work that many women undertake in, quote, collecting and preserving personal documents and literally creating their own archives. As Tambuku noted of the female craft workers she studied, Buttrick endeavoured throughout her career as boxer and boxing administrator to archive the self so that she wasn't forgotten and so, so her legacy really was taken care of. The Buttrick collection, I think, can be seen as a living example of Barbara's work in preserving her, her memories as a pioneering athlete and activist for women's sport. It also includes a number of examples of the kind of proactive memory work undertaken to ensure that her personal contributions were recognised alongside the way in which women's boxing began to develop from the 1990s. So, for example, in the archive, there's, there's early promotional pamphlets for the WIBF, and I've given ex uh, an example here, which almost always included a section on the boxing legacy of the then current president, president and battling Barbara, side by side with summaries of upcoming promotions and future development plans. You know, it was, her legacy was kind of embedded in the future development of, of the uh, organised women's boxing in this, uh, in, to an extent. Another interesting example is provided uh, on the right-hand side there by, this is a, a Nike ad, Nike advertisement, which ran in several women's magazines, which included uh, Cosmopolitan, Elle and Vogue during the spring of 1996. When I gave the paper before and, and um, uh, Raf mentioned this, uh, I need to thank uh, Alex Jackson, who pointed out, and I should have noticed this because I had seen it before, that there, this was a series of ads where um, kind of legendary uh, female boxers were were included. And so there was a, there was there was one also which I had seen before, but but Alex reminded me of the of the Dick Pear ladies footballer and um, Lily Parr, who was also featured in this. Um, so there we have Buttrick. At this time, she was sixty six years old. She's got hand wraps, a towel around her shoulders. You probably can't see it very clearly, so I'll just indicate the phrase on, on the kind of right hand side is in, in Barbara's day, you had to just you had to fight just to be allowed in a ring. And then there's a very short potted biography underneath, which talks about her uh, boxing career, but also her WIBF presidency and closing with the words. Of course, it's Nike. So closing with the words, if you believe in something, fight for it, just do it. OK, so I want to briefly now go backwards and um, before we go forwards again to look at the link between Buttrick and early fi earlier fighters particularly in the late Victorian and Edwardian period and my link here is what I've already mentioned a couple of times Barbara's own narrative which effectively takes her takes her inspiration back to this period through Polly Burns. Burns's story is quite complex and elusive I think um, and I think it, re it will repay kind of quite a lot of, um, uh, it, will, it will be some really interesting historical search which should be done on Burns' story as well, because it's, it's really fascinating. And I've only touched the surface of it so far. 
What we do know is that she was one of a number of women fighters who fought around the turn of the 20th century in boxing booths at fairgrounds and on the music hall stage. But much of her story is kind of shrouded in kind of mystery and myth. When you look at the sections about Polly Burns in, in, in the books that I've mentioned already, like Melissa Smith's history and um, C.L. Jennings' book, you know, they're very, you know, basically kind of indicate, well, there, there are all sorts of things we're not sure about. There are all sorts of claims about what Burns did. And I'll talk about the origins of these kind of claims in a minute. Um, we we there's evidence that in 1900 um, Burns apparently travelled to Paris to take on um, Mamie Donovan from Texas. Donovan failed to turn up, and Burns was declared world champion. Now Polly was born in 1881 um, to a Lancashire circus family. She became a strong woman, and she boxed and wrestled. She fought in booths mostly against men. And some accounts also claim that she wrestled lions and bears. There's a story about her wrestling a bear, which features in lots of uh, the later stories. And she lifted ponies with her teeth, apparently. Around 1900, she married Tommy Lynch and moved to Dublin, but was apparently still soon back fighting in the booths and on the music hall stage. Other stories include her having exhibition fights with world heavyweight champion Jack Johnson, British heavyweight Billy Wells, um, for which there is less corroborating evidence, but, uh, but she was certainly in the same place to have, to have fought in an exhibition fight against, against Billy Wells, so that may well have happened. Um, there was, there's also a suggestion that she, she was the only woman to compete at the National Sporting Club where she met her next husband and former, a former boxer and bookmaker called Tommy Burns, not the famous Tommy Burns that um, fought against Jack Johnson in for the world heavyweight title and was world heavyweight champion, but, but another, an Irish, um, uh, an Irishman called Tommy Burns. Now that definitely did happen because I found lots of evidence that that took place. She fought in 1915 and may have fought at other times in the national, at the national sporting club. Much of the evidence for Burns's boxing career, and this is kind of the interesting thing in a sense, seems to have come from the story she told to British newspapers during the 1940s and 1950s, such as the one that Buttrick apparently read. So that article that Buttrick refers to in terms of, you know, understanding how she knew about boxing is almost certainly a short piece entitled Bolly the, uh, Polly the Champ, which was published in the Sunday Dispatch in December 1946. And I've just kind of put a, a brief kind of clippings from that at the bottom there. In it, the sports columnist John Batson reports an interview with Burns, who had come to London, apparently, to advise a film company who were screening her life story. I found nothing else about that having developed, but that's apparently why she was in London and why she had the interview. Um, instead of, quote, the tough Amazon bearing the facial scars of a tough profession that he'd expected to meet, Batson described Burns as, quote, a smartly tailored lady with warm brown eyes and smooth complexion who had more charm, charm and femininity, despite her 65 years, than most modern sports girls. Now, interestingly, that particular clipping isn't included in the Buttrick archive, but others are, including the article I put in the middle here, which is a Daily Mail article from 1950, which documented a down on a luck Burns who, having moved from Ireland to Blackpool, was charged with stealing jewellery. Burns's defence counsel repeated many of the claims about her career, 
that were recounted in the Sunday Dispatch article and in other various other articles over the, over the previous and, and the following few years. Burns died in 1959, but her notoriety as one of Britain's kind of early, quote, lady boxers, lived on, I think, through recurrent repetition in short columns and readers' letters in the popular press. You can follow this in the Daily, the Daily Mirror particularly, every so often seems to have reminded its readers of Burns, you know, quite, there's lots of examples from the, through the 60s, 70s and 80s. And readers kind of let us say, oh, I seem to remember there was a, a female boxer around the turn of the century. And so her name continued to kind of, you know, not that often, but every so often to kind of emerge in the popular press. In reality, Burns was simply the best known of the dozens of women who boxed at fairs and on the music hall stage, you know, uh, before and up to um, the First World War. Gerald Gems and Gertrude Pfister have, have researched similar developments in the US on the vaudeville and circuits uh, and circus stages. But they don't say a lot about the kind of connections between um, that and kind of elsewhere. In Britain, I would say the chronology, meanings and motives of these boxes were remarkably similar. Many women boxers were connected to family booths, including people like Nellie, Nellie Wilson, the Johnson sisters from Scotland that I've got a picture of there, who were also known as the Matchett sisters, William Moore's daughters, the wife of showman Ronnie Taylor and many others. The latter um, uh, fought her husband and would take on men from the crowd. Apparently she wore a chest, chest protector, but was apparently too fast anyway for any of her opponents to lay a glove on her. Another interesting example is Rosie Danvers, who's, met, who's, who's featured in this cartoon and um, boxing Professor Ball which was a cartoon from The Showman in 1901. And Danvers is another fascinating character we just don't know enough about. Um, she was billed as lady champion of the world. Um, she was boxing from the late 1880s up to the early 1900s in shows with Alf Ball and Professor Ball, in, in uh, shows with another um, uh, another uh, a boxing professor and um uh, and impresario Harry Hughes. She fought against women and men. She fought with bare fists, but she also fought with weapons, which was quite common at the time. And if you look at what was happening in that period, kind of the, the, the late last decade of the 19th century, first decade of the 20th century, publications such as Boxing World and Mirror of Life, The Stage and The Showman, reported on the activities of these female boxers. And I think what they're doing is really they're put, reporting at it uh, on it as a kind of fairly normal part of mainstream entertainment and sporting culture. They're not reporting about it in terms of outrage and novel or novelty or anything like that. As in the US, the activities of these, we might call them boxer entertainers, strong, strong women quite often and kind of those sorts of things. It wasn't really out of line with the norms and values of the working class show business and boxing culture of the era. So I wanna move on to the second kind of interlude and that's this kind of period which I called Barbara Forgotten. Now, women's boxing didn't uh, disappear from Britain after Buttrick's move to the United States in the 1950s. Women continued to train and to fight in competitive if not fully licensed bouts from the 1960s to the 1990s. An important figure towards the end of this period was Sue Atkins, uh, a landscape gardener from Mitcham in Surrey. She began boxing in the late 1970s 
and claimed the unofficial British Lightweight Championship in 1983, a title which she retained for 10 years. Atkins also received significant publicity when she appeared as a boxer in the 1991 film Blonde Fist alongside actor Margie Clark, and there's a still from that on the right-hand side. And uh, uh, Sue Atkins appeared as a character, Crazy Sue. Now, Atkins moved into administration and, and promotion. She set up a short-lived organisation called the British Ladies Boxing Association in 1993, and she put on the first all-male, all, all, sorry, all-female fight card in the UK in suiting Broadway in 1994. And this is when Buttrick appears again on the scene in Britain. Along with Irish trainer and promoter Jimmy Finn, Buttrick established a British arm of the WIBF, which organised an international fight card in 1994 at York Hall in Bethnal Green. And the event drew considerable publicity, including a Channel 4 documentary. But it wasn't typical of women's boxing at the time. One of the York Hall fighters, Gillian Binns, recalled participating in over 50 underground fights across Britain during the 1990s, in which she felt, quote, like an animal being thrown in the ring to satisfy the hungry eyes of men. Around this time, another officer emerged who helped the sport break through. That's Jane Catch uh, from Fleetwood in Lancashire. She was also became a WIBF champion, but was better known for her success in challenging the British Boxing Board of Control's refusal to grant her a professional license. And there's some context here. By the 1990s, the growing popularity of martial arts and box aerobics had led to an increased female interest in boxing. The International Amateur Boxing Federation sanctioned women, women's boxing in 1993, and the Amateur Boxing Association of England permitted its first female bouts in 1997. It also set up a Women's Boxing Commission and reported in 1997 that at least 73 out of 601 boxing clubs had female members and there were nearly 400 women actively training. Now, the professional British Boxing Board of Control was less open to change and it consistently refused to license women, which basically left Catch unable to defend her world title on home soil. So in 1998, she took the British Boxing Board of Control to court and she won. An industrial tribunal found that she'd been treated unfairly and discriminated against. While Couch finally received recognition as an innovator in the sport, she received the MBE in 2007. She was initially ostracised by British promoters and that's, that becomes very clear in her second autobiography. No one wanted to go near me, she, she noted. I was, still, I was still not an athlete or a pioneer or a champion. I was a freak. So if 1998 is generally recognised as a key kind of turning point for women's boxing in Britain, it's interesting that Buttrick was largely excluded from the narrative. Okay, So in neither of Couch's autobiographies, she's now got two autobiographies, and I've put the covers of both of them there, Fleetwood Assassin, which I think was published in 2001, and the final round, which was published in 2019. Buttrick doesn't feature at all, and neither do any of the female forerunners of the sport. Catch's story is that she was unaware that, that women were able to box until she saw a documentary about them. And I think that was probably the Channel 4 programme. And she saw this documentary and she says, well, they weren't very good, so I, I thought I could do much better. And in commenting on the tribunal's decision and Catch's sub subsequent progress, the press also rarely mentioned Buttrick, Burns or the others. 
There's one notable exception, and that's a column that I found in Boxing News from 1999 when George Delaney observed that Couch and Co have fearless babs to thank for giving women women's boxing credibility. And he gave a potted history of Buttrick's boxing career, but it was full of errors. Um, elsewhere, though, Barbara, Polly, and even to some extent Sue Atkins kind of dis disappear to a degree and are erased from the historical record of women boxing in this period in the late kind of 1990s and early part of the 20th century. Okay, so this is where we move on to the significance of the 2012 Olympics. Of course, it was the first time that women's boxing was included in the programme. In Britain, coverage of that decision, which took place in 2009, um, and previews of the event included barely any mention, again, of the female boxing pioneers at first. There is the odd reference to Jane Pank, but not much more. But gradually, what's happened, and I've kind of studied the, the, the various way in which the, the press treatment changed, but gradually the story of Buttrick and, and others began to be woven into that of women's boxing at the London Games. In 2010, for instance, a Daily Mirror article used her induction into the Florida Boxing Hall of Fame as an opportunity to celebrate Buttrick as, quote, one of the best fighters in the history of the sport. It included a short career synopsis, which seems to basically as act, act as a template for later accounts. It was pinched, it was borrowed by others. And elsewhere in the same issue, quite interesting, the paper offered an, an official apology to Buttrick on behalf of former professional and mirror, mirror columnist Freddie Mills, who of course was long dead, um, who'd written in 1957, come off it, Barbara. And this was when Barbara was fighting in, in the US. Come off it, Barbara, the fight game is one field of sport that can safely do without your presence. By the middle of 2011, Buttrick, who was by now 81 years old, but still president of the WIBF, and her story were beginning to be formally connected to the games. This occurred, first of all, through her involvement in an exhibition of female boxers organised by Holborn photojournalist Lee Karen Stowe as part of the Cultural Olympiad. By the end of the year, Buttrick had also been invited by Lord Coe to an Olympics test event, which prompted a series of articles on her career, one of which identified her as a key figure in a century-long battle for equality. A year on, and the media was increasingly identifying and celebrating pioneering female boxers in order to frame its discussion of women's boxing at the Olympics. And Buttrick in particular became a prominent presence. There were numerous articles which mentioned her appearance at the competition, which interviewed her, which used her story as a structuring advice for the achievements of female boxers in general, and particularly Nic Nicola Adams. A lot of these articles connected Adams and Buttrick. And part of the idea was, well, Adams also was from Yorkshire, but it also focused on what was considered the ordinariness of Adams. And that was likened to Buttrick and contrasted to the overhyped world of professional boxing. The gold medalist, one account claimed, was a polite, bubbly Yorkshire woman with gravel in her guts who never stopped smiling. Some things haven't changed since Buttrick's day. And so a number of accounts noted that the Buttrick's attendance at the first day had been important and to her as a kind of landmark event. Um, uh, the Daily Mirror commented on, on Buttrick's introduction to the crowd at this semi-final and said that these were all legends of women's boxing. 
And even the Daily Mail, which was the only newspaper at that time, was still was still openly sceptical about women's Olympic boxing, did sort of celebrate Buttrick as, an, as a kind of living symbol of the long journey women's boxing had taken from the fairgrounds to, to being a part of the Olympic movement. Just very briefly, because, well, I'm, I'm kind of going to run out of time in talking about this, but a very brief thing. And Nicola Adams, um, I'm not going to talk a lot about her autobiography, but Believe is an interesting autobiography in all sorts of ways as well. It was the first one published since um, Fleetwood Assassin, um, published in, in 2017. And the interesting thing about Adams too, she does talk to a certain degree about sexism and discrimination of sport in sport. And she does position her experiences in relation to the history of women's sport. But her references are to recent examples, to the England women's football team, the GB women's hockey team who won gold in 2006, the athlete Paula Radcliffe. Adams does briefly mention uh, uh, Jane Couch as a pioneer of women's boxing. But she said, I was quite young when it happened. I knew it it had taken place. You know, I knew she'd done it, but that's all it said. No mention made of Buttrick or Burns. And actually, interestingly, no mention made of kind of international female boxing stars, such as Christy Martin, Leila Ali or or others. Her reference, reference points and boxing heroes in the book are exclusively male. Muhammad Ali... Sugar Ray Leonard, Prince Nazim Hamed. And she also talks a lot about her sporting mentors, her first coach, her lifelong trainer, a team GB coach is all of human male. And that's a kind of interesting. It's a relative absence of wider references to, to women in boxing. And, um, uh, and to a certain degree, Buttrick, after the successes of Adams, and, and she becomes the figure who, who becomes a kind of... Um, uh, influential symbol of where British boxing was going, you know, after she'd won the uh, Commonwealth Games and then her second Olympics title. But trick and the pre-2012 history of women's boxing does fade a little from view. But it resurfaced again, and this is the last, the last bit really, in the summer of 2017. And the catal- catalyst for this was, was a play, Amanda Whittington's Mighty Atoms. It was performed uh, written and performed to coincide with the whole UK City of Culture celebrations. Interestingly, there was another play, which was also produced at the time, called Delicate Flowers, which takes its name from the quotation that we saw in the earlier clip um, by Mark Reese. But I'm focusing on the Whittington play because she's a better-known playwright and it it made more of an impact. Um, The play is set in a working-class estate in in contemporary Hull. It uses boxing as a theme to explore wider issues of austerity, prejudice, gender identity and female empowerment. One of the central characters in the all-female cast is Taylor Flint, a former elite boxer who failed to make the 2012 Olympic squad. Flint is persuaded to lead a boxer-sized class at a rundown community pub and eventually to organise a boxing event to save the pub from closure. The other key character is Buttry portrayed in her young 1950s persona. She opens the play, boxing at an exhibition at a Yorkshire fairground, and flits in and out of the contemporary action, motivating and conjoling the characters and encouraging them to take a swipe at circumstances that threaten to hold them back, as one reviewer puts it. Significantly, Buttrick features through most of the play as a shadowy or watchful presence. She's referred to by, briefly by a younger boxer, Grace, who says, I googled her. Girls, boxing, hull, she come up. 
The pub owner, Nora, also notes that Buttrick used to fight in fairgrounds and carnivals, fought for the right to fight. No one else gave her a shot. So if Barbara's role is to provide the historical and moral backdrop for the problems and anxieties that the characters face, she's still a, a kind of a, quite an active presence. She's offered as a source of inspiration in the play to the modern characters, particularly Taylor, who is the only character with whom she interacts at times shadow boxing and boxing in dreamlike sequences and at other times exchanging dialogue. I think it's not unreasonable to, to suggest that Buttrick's role in Mighty Atoms kind of mirrors the use to which she was put by journalists seeking to explain the context and meaning of Nicola Adams' Olympic success in 2012. And it, what was interesting was the play then offered a further opportunity to increase bu public awareness of boxing, uh, Buttrick's career. And there's loads of press around this. Buttrick travelled to the UK for a number of events related to the whole, whole city of culture celebrations, including the Mighty Atoms um, premiere. She was a focus, for instance, of a talk and panel discussion in May 2017, a whole city hall as part of Women of the World Festival. And the event prompted a wave of media coverage on Buttrick. Uh, and significantly, it was the first time which, when BBC television and online features quoted Adams on Buttrick, I'd not seen any reference of made to Buttrick by Adams before this. And um, so a BBC article says, and that Adam, Adams was quoted as saying, it's because of women like her that's made it possible for me to box. It was quite tough for me. Women's boxing wasn't really accepted, so I can't imagine how hard it must have been for her to keep pushing, keep training, and try to be taken seriously. And she finds, finally finishes by thanking Buttrick for paving the way. And this play has continued to be significant. It was, it was put on, there was a production of Mighty Atoms recently put on um, by, by the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts in, in December 2023. Again, someone told me about this. Unfortunately, I couldn't get to see it. But, um, you know, hopefully this is going to reoccur as well because it, 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 I think it's a, a really interesting piece of work. So, so to conclude, really, um, writing in, in a really good article, actually, um, from 2022 about women volunteers in boxing, Hayley Fitzgerald, Annette Stride and Scarlett Drury suggest that the history of women's boxing is well documented. Respectfully, I would disagree. Boxing is one of many sports in which women's participation has largely been obscured both in official histories and to a lesser extent in social memory. And this is particularly true in Britain where the, particularly the academic historiography of boxing, male and female, I think is still relatively thin. So there's been some really important work by some of the people that I've mentioned, Vanessa Toolman, Melissa Smith. I also mentioned Jenny Hargreaves. And we know more than we used to know about the scope and cultural significance of women who box and the gendered restrictions placed on the sport. Still, I think the contribution of truly pioneering figures such as Barbara Buttrick remains largely absent from these accounts. This contrasts, I think, with the way in which such historical narratives inform journalistic understandings of recent developments, such as the introduction of women's boxing to the Olympics and the career of Nicola Adams. The history is there everywhere in the way this was, this was kind of presented to people. From 2012 and across the following decade, Buttrick, I think, has emerged as a powerful symbol of women's boxing in the past. She was interpreted 
as embodying the right to fight and was regularly utilised to outline and emphasise how far the sport had come. Like her character in Mighty Atoms, Buttrick shadowed the main action, explaining what it meant and why it mattered. The fact that journalists grasp of the historical context, as well as the factual detail of Buttrick's career, has sometimes been patchy, is less significant, I think, than the fact that it was used to frame the achievements of the, the new early 21st century pioneers like Nicola Adams as both new and built upon the gender struggles of the past. As such, it reflects Buttrick's success, I think, in archiving the self and ensuring that her story continues to be told. And that's it, thanks. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, shall we give Matt a, uh, a round of applause, everybody? You're allowed to unmute yourself for this bit if you want to. Um, Matt, do you want to um, just uh, stop sharing your slides so that we can see you a little bit better? That's perfect. Thank you so much. What a really interesting paper. Um, so as I said at the start, we do now have some time for questions um i can't see any in the chat at the moment um but feel free to um, put your hand up um virtually on the zoom or if you want to come on camera you can physically wave your hand in the air um or do type any questions you have into the chat if you would prefer um so i'll start matt um if if that's okay um i i'm I think it's really interesting that you concluded by saying that you think that Buttrick's attempt to archive herself has succeeded. Um, and I'd like to kind of sort of um, like get you to unpack that a little bit more, because it seemed like from what you were saying that um, her attempt to archive herself had sort of failed to the extent of um, the the fact that you were sort of saying that women's participation in boxing has like historically um, has largely been obscured um, and that there hasn't been an awful lot of recognition about it. So there's almost like, is there a sort of bit of a tension in what you're saying in the sense of um, that she maybe would have um, benefited from that kind of recognition a little bit earlier or that there could actually still be more recognition of her achievements perhaps? So can you just kind of uh, sort of speak to that tension a little bit perhaps? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the tensions uh, it, it, which I kind of, in a way, kind of concluded with was uh, the the big distinction I think from, and um, although there's been some really good kind of historical accounts, which which you know, and Bartrick's story kind of plays a big part in these these and um, the books I mentioned at the, at the start, which I think someone's asking me to talk more about later, but that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll talk those. Um, but I think, but I think generally, there's just just not you know, there's not enough been written about these key figures. Um, whereas I think that the success was in making sure that the story was told with her at the centre of the story um, and that this actually had an impact, you know, in, from 2012 onwards. You have this incredible raft of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of features of, of Buttrick because of contemporary events, because of the, the rise of women's boxing, because it was developing in the public eye. And I think that's what I mean, that... She became, I'm not suggesting that she was kind of somehow masterminding this, but because she had created, you know, she documented herself through her career and she'd made sure that this material was available in an archive, you know, an archive that, that historians and others can get to. 
and that there there was this kind of um, narrative that could be taken, which could be almost taken off the shelf, you know, and used, which which it was in a sense by by, by journalists. So in that sense, I think it was successful. But but you're right. I mean, she still is nowhere near as well known as she should be. And my vagueness around other figures, particularly the earlier ones, is an indication we know we know we know next to nothing about them. And we know next to nothing about Polly Burns, who was clearly crucial. We know next to nothing about Rosie Danvers, who seems to have been a fascinating figure. There's no actual, you know, I've got a cartoon of her. That's all I've found. You know, others may have found some. But yeah, yeah, there is that tension there. So, um, and I think that's where those tensions are, both the journalistic accounts against the scholarly accounts and also, you know, her success in perhaps making her um, um story central but yeah the overall story of women's boxing we, we still there's still not enough there's, there are gaps and they're yeah. you know they're fragments really thank you um yeah we have got a couple of questions in the chat um one's from david about can we get the titles of the the books that you mentioned at the beginning of the presentation um i don't know if you've got those to hand matt or <laughs> <laughs> i'm trying to see if, um yeah, so I'm, I mean, I can mention, I think Melissa Smith's book um, is called is called a History of Women's Boxing. Um, it's published in 2014. Um, so the other author is is T.L. Jennings, who's, I can't remember the title of that. I could easily find it, and, but I probably couldn't do it in the time we've still got it. Uh, T.L. Jennings' um, book, which is a broader history of female combat sport. Um, and Vanessa Tormin's book is called A Fair Fight, and um, which is a primarily about fairground boxing because Vanessa Tormin was the director of the National Fairground Archive, which is interesting where Barbara Buttrick's collection it, uh, is. Um, she's got a chapter on, on women's boxing, and that's where sort of a lot of the starting point I got and some of the, the, the other fighters who were around at the same sort of time as, as Polly Burns. Um, the whole book's about, you know, much more broadly on, on, on fairground boxing, which is a fascinating subject in its own right. But, yeah, she's got a chapter on that. Uh, so those were the main ones I mentioned, which I think do say something about Barbara Patrick. Then I meant, then mentioned another one which doesn't say much, which is Joe of Jem's book. Great. Thanks, Matt. Um, next question. Um, do we have any evidence of how male boxers viewed Buttrick in the 1940s and 50s? Yeah, um, well, um, we've got Freddie Mills uh, writing in the, I mean, I, I did, that's what I mentioned, you know, um, writing, in, writing in his column in the mirror. Um, not, not a great deal, not a great deal. Um, um, I'm trying to think if there were, there were, so, what's an interesting, again, kind of looking, looking at her archives, she seems very much certainly in Britain to have been, at best, I mean, probably not even noticed a great deal, kind of ignored by by male boxers. You know, she did feature for these particular incidents, which got quite a lot of attention in 49 and then 50. And then she was a, she, she was sort of a presence in the boxing press for a while, kind of almost as the only fighter, the female fighter. And so she had she did go to to, to, to France and then and then and then to the US. So there's no real there's not a great deal of indication that um you know, she was acknowledged. I mean, she she got some support when she first came to London um, from Wally May, who became one of her trainers as well, along with Len Smith, who who married her eventually, who um who, who were you know very supportive of her. But there's not and, and 
there's not a great deal of indication of how in the gym how she was treated, but she doesn't seem to doesn't seem to be any awful stories of that. Um, but certainly, interestingly, through her archive, there are then many. Uh, once she became an administrator later on, there were endless pictures of her um, uh, photographed with kind of key boxing figures, M Mike Tyson from Mike Tyson downwards. You know, many other people. So she clearly became known, you know, later on, you know, and, and particularly in the US, much less so in this country. So, but yeah, not a great um, deal of uh, evidence of how she was regarded at the time, but I, I, I feel she was probably just not known about or ignored by male boxers. Mm. Okay. Um, and there's another question from Daniel. Um, thank, he says, thank you so much for the fascinating presentation. I was curious how much of your research found that certain countries embraced or encouraged women boxers, whereas others did not. Um, perhaps perceptions in America versus the UK. I guess that speaks to Buttrick kind of moving over yeah. to America in the in the early fifties. Um, and does this prevail to today? These kind of differences in um, embracing or encouraging women boxers versus not doing that. Yeah, I mean, put, to give you a probably to be fair, to give you a, a really a decent answer to that question, question, I'm not able to do that. I, I don't. I probably. Both in the contemporary context, I probably don't know enough to answer that. And in the in the in the more historical sense, there are people doing some good. There are people doing interesting work on, on women's boxing in various, you know, uh, in Mexico, for instance, some interesting stuff. More recent stuff in on Norway that I've read. So there are lots and lots of, you know, bits and pieces. And and, and a couple of things. I mean, clearly, clearly, um, Britain was was. Was behind in this, which is one reason why um, Buckley decided to go to the US, where she thought there was things were more open. And she was likely to at least get some um, recognition, and though it took a bit of time, she did, and she kind of regards that as a very successful move. Um, but later on, certainly, you know, when you talk about think about Jane Jane Couch's decision as well, there was this feeling that the you know both the British British amateur boxing was lagging a li little bit behind as well. It took the uh, kind of international decisions and decisions in a number of other countries initially to to, to kind of permit um, uh, women's women's boxing at an amateur level, and you know the British Boxing Board of Control was notoriously considered just you know a, a conservative with a small c as generous, and um, you know it was it was um, uh, certainly not open to to um, consider women's boxing until it was forced to do so. It needed a cage to do it because it wouldn't have done it on it you know what they're saying so i think there are all sorts of comparisons that probably could be made i haven't done the research to, to find that out because i've mainly focused on britain and you know with you know the areas where, where, where people like buttrick go as well but not a broader global history which would be really interesting where are you hoping to go with the research matt is this something that you're pursuing uh i'm not sure really i, I i've only kind of i'll be honest with you, i kind of it's one of the areas kind of history of women's boxing in Britain, which I've kind of waited for a PhD student to do, um, which I probably, not maybe not necessarily with me, but somewhere. And so I'm at the moment dipping my toe in it, and I'd like to do it, but I'm not sure I should be the, I don't know. I think I think perhaps someone else should do it. So at the moment, I'm going to keep doing bits and pieces and then see, see where that leads. But certainly if someone... <laughs> I'm, I'm not offering anyone money, money to fund this, but, but, you know, it's a great topic, which someone could really do. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, 
yeah if anyone has got any last questions then do wave your hand or or put them in the chat oh amanda you've just come on video is that to ask a question yes yeah you're waving your yes, arm please. go for it all right um so i was just wondering if you think um matt that the the this kind of obscurity in the academy and in and in the archive um how that compares with with other sports and other combat sports obviously i got a bit of an axe to grind there but um wondering what your your findings have been in comparisons yeah i mean you know, I, I feel it's an odd thing because with box box boxing as this incredible literature you know going back to um you know, Egan and others, you know, going back to, to, the, to the 18th century, it has this incredible amount of brilliant writing about it. You know, so I'm not denying that that exists. So I'm talking about boxing more generally. And for, you know, it, in the context of which, you know, female boxers are mentioned, I mean, I just very recently written a very small article, kind of, which talked about some of these things, but also went further back to Elizabeth Wilkinson Stokes and others who were kind of um, involved in the in the 1720s and things like that. And then... And, um, you know, so the, the, this it's kind of there's a, there's a really rich literature, but I suppose academically it's thin, and um, there hasn't been much on on British book. I mean, in American books, and there's been lots of this, some of the best kind of kind of um, academic historical work has been on American boxing, uh, uh, on American sport has been on boxing. In Britain, you know, there just hasn't been much on boxing generally. Um, so I think I'm not surprised that um, women's boxing has come a lot long way after, you know, women's, you know, studies on women's football, studies on, you know, rugby and, you know, and they don't, and, and, um, but they're so, I suppose, kind of linked to your work as well on, on kind of, you know, stuff like that. There's, there's so many kind of interesting, interesting issues that are raised and, and the kind of, the kind of tension between, you know, um, uh, uh, prevailing norms and those who simply, simply busted through them. All the time, and you know, we're just and actually within within particular kind of subcultures, which seems to have been the case where Polly Burns was and others, where actually they weren't necessarily breaking through; they were completely accepted in those kind of contexts. And so that's really just fascinating that you know we're told in I suppose more general, you know, that actually this sort of activity wouldn't be successful, uh, acceptable at all. That boxing was you know were stood against everything you might expect, you know. Um, women to represent yet it was happening it was happening a lot more you know i've barely touched the surface that's why it needs really deep study of it but but yeah um and a lot of it is about the narratives as well which i kind of focused on in this which i'm really fascinating as well how we remember stories in a particular way and stuff like that so yeah it, it's but it's sort of behind a lot of things i'm not surprised i suppose boxing you know, it's taken me, and I'm not I'm not the most progressive person. It's taken me to kind of do it, but someone else needs to take it on there. So yeah, interesting. Thanks. Thanks. I'm gonna find it very difficult not to look into Polly Burns now. Yeah. <laughs> well, Fiona Skillen says, Thanks for a great paper, Matt. You should definitely be the one to pursue this further. Exclamation mark. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Fiona. <laughs> um Matt, I can't remember if I asked you this when you gave the paper at BSSH, but I don't think I did. Um, did Buttrick ever self-identify as a feminist? No, not that I've I've come across no indication of that. Um uh again, I haven't I haven't explored um 
her period in the US as much, which might be interesting, to, you know, to, to to do that and see to what to what you know whether it you know came up. But no, she, she, there's there's no indication of that in anything and that I've read or or seen her um you know presenting in terms of herself. And in anything that you've seen about Nicola Adams, does she do that? Yeah, I mean, there was a bit that I cut out in a sense. She, she kind of, um, she, she does, she, she kind of does deal with that towards the last few chapters. I believe are quite interesting because she deals with um, issues of race, issues of sexuality, and um, and and those sorts of things. And um, and and then she does say she does actually, you know. Interestingly, that I talked about her kind of having her you know, the male figures who are really important. You know, she says, you know, actually, you know, I I consider myself, you know, fighting for for women. I shouldn't use the term feminine, but she 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 considers herself to be a key figure, and she will continue to do that. And that's been one of her significant achievements. So yeah, and um, I think she is kind of, you know, close to kind of doing that. And and uh, but she's a very interesting figure as well, uh, Nicola Adams, in all sorts of ways. Yeah, someone needs to write something about her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. But, but I think there have been some interesting sociological stuff on her. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, okay. Great. Um, well, we've got people who are sort of um, leaving at various yeah. points because I think we said we were going to try and wrap up at seven. So we've gone a little bit over. Um, so I think we'll we'll wrap up there. Um, just remains for me to say thank you so much to Matt for a really interesting paper. Um, and, and thank you all for coming. Um, let's just thank Matt one more time. Mm -hmm. um and we will have another edition of the sport and leisure history seminar um coming up in in two weeks time um jeff can you remind me what the uh, have we got the we got the details of the next seminar to hand at all why don't you tell them about the seatran event on friday first yeah absolutely um so um, this coming Friday, um, the 2nd of February, um, we have um, at the Institute of Historical Research in London, um, starting at uh, 2 p.m., um, we have Clem Seacheran uh, um, in conversation with David Woodhouse. Um, so, um, yeah, two heavyweights of, of cricket um, literature, um, in discussion um, about Clem's um, incredible scholarship um, in in cricket. Um, is there anything else you want me to say, Jeff? That one is going to be available on Zoom as well. Yeah, I think we'll podcast it, um, possibly Zoom. Uh, but uh, just to be clear, you have to you have to register in advance if you want to be there. So there is a cap on the number of people we can have, and um, we're expecting it to be quite popular. Um, but yeah, and then in two weeks' time, it's Max Ferrer who's talking about Barcelona Football Club, an American scholar. I think you chatted to him last week or the week before, Raf. Yes, we did. Um, so we're looking forward to that one as well. Um, so I've just popped yeah. a link in the chat to the uh to the Clem event on Friday in case anyone wants to register for that one. Um, and otherwise, you can just go to our page on the IHR website um, and find the details of the program for the rest of the semester. Yeah, Roughly. Max, Thank yeah, you Max very much. will be a hybrid event as well. So in in person and online on the 12th of Feb. Ace. OK, great. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks. OK, bye.